It is uh, 3 p.m. right here on KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM, and that means that it's time for my radio show, Arabology, the show that comes to you every Thursday from 3 to 5 p.m., and which attempts to take you on a, well, let's say a virtual trip through your mind to distant lands and exotic places, places where Arabic is spoken and where this kind of Arabic music is uh, being produced, uh, music that will uh, hopefully uh, astound you and surprise you and please you and uh, offer you a different uh, perspective of the region. My name is DJ Ramsey and the show is Arabology right here on KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM.
The unmistakable sound of the Lebanese uh, group band named Mashru'a Layla. They have been creating waves all over the Middle East and beyond. They're currently touring in Europe. This is an amazing alternative band that comes from Beirut, Lebanon. And uh, they've been around for a couple of years now. And they're managing to redefine the alternative music scene in uh, Lebanon as well as the rest of the Arabic speaking world. If you heard the song, you might have wondered what genre it is. Well, it's very difficult to classify, but one genre it isn't is traditional in their use of music and uh, lyrics, as well as the way they blend uh, uh, and diffuse Western and Eastern beats in what looks like, or seems like, or even sounds like perfect harmony. The group Mashru Alayla just sang a song called Emil Jaquet, and that song in itself is very interesting. Uh, Melody is 
side, it also has these uh, very uh, daring lyrics uh, in which the male uh, vocalist of the group, uh, whose name is uh, Hamid Sinno, an amazing guy, and uh, he's, uh, he's talking to a girl that he's seen from afar who's wearing a jacket, and I guess from afar she, he thought she was a guy and was oddly attracted to her, only to find out that she was a uh, woman. So there you go, talk about uh, challenging uh, uh, traditional uh, concepts of uh, gender. Ashrua Layla came to you via the Arabology show with the song Imel Jaket. Before that, we heard the, the beautiful vocals of uh, Umayma El Khalil and the song called Darit Al Ahwi, all about uh, the coffee pot uh, stirring and uh, being distributed to guests. Of course, that's a very traditional Middle Eastern custom. And that song was taken from her album, simply titled Ya. And we began the set, ladies and gentlemen, with with a uh, group called The Egyptian Project and uh, that upbeat song called Enta Anna, right here on the Arabology Show, coming to you from KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM. Since 1980, the Human Rights Campaign has worked for the day when gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender individuals are ensured of their basic equal rights and can be open, honest, and safe at home, at work, and in the community. If you would like to become involved in their fight for equal rights or would like to support the efforts of HRC, please visit their website at www.hrc.org. That's www.hrc.org. This show is Arabology, and uh, I come to you uh, here. This is DJ Ramsey. Every, every Thursday from 3 p.m. until 5 p.m. We are streaming live, ladies and gentlemen, at kzsulive.stanford.edu. It's sort of a, I don't know, windy, kind of cold uh, day here at Stanford today, Thursday, October 11th. Nevertheless, we hope the music that I'll be playing for the next uh, hour and a half or hour 45 minutes will keep you warm if you're in your car hope you're driving safely and i'm glad you were able to join me today because in addition to music on my show i I always try to bring in guests who have something to say about uh, the arabic world the arab world and the uh, uh, state of affairs there Um, and uh, certainly these guests that i bring uh, do not necessarily reflect or their opinions do not necessarily reflect those of kzsu or, or or even of yours truly personally but they have a lot to say and what they say is quite interesting. Often it's the kind of thing that you don't hear about uh, a lot on the uh, mainstream media these days and one of those guests actually is uh, is a professor here at Stanford. Her name is uh, Maryam Abu Sharkh and Miriam Abu Sharkh who is a visiting associate professor at the Stanford Center for International Development uh, and a visiting scholar at the Center of Democracy Development and the Rule of Law of Stanford University. Well, all of that, wow. And uh, Miriam, or Professor Abu Sharh, agreed to sit with me a couple of months ago for this interview that I'm going to air today. Um, Professor Miriam Abu Sharh is on faculty at the Development Studies Institute at the London School of Economics and Political Science, where she is the principal research fellow on a large grant by the European Research Council on global 
governance and human rights. This research builds on her previous work as a postdoctoral fellow at the Center of Democracy, Development and the Rule of Law and her dissertation on History and Results of Labor Standard Initiatives. Uh, it's uh, the dissertation also draws on field studies in Gaza and the West Bank on the social movement dynamics of the first intifada. Before returning to Stanford, Dr. Abu Shark was employed by the United Nations as the People's Security Coordinator at the International Labor Organization. She analyzed and managed large household uh, fr- from uh, de- uh, and large households from developing countries. She also worked on the Arab region for the report on the world social situation for the United Nations Department of Economic and Social Affairs in New York and continues to write for UNRISD. Her writings cover the spread and effect of human rights related labor standards, determinants of welfare regimes, gender discrimination nation, child labor, social movements, and work satisfaction. She has traveled extensively, both professionally and privately. She loves to dive and sail and speaks English, German, Spanish, French, as well as some Arabic. So I was uh, delighted to sit with uh, Professor Miriam Abu-Sharikh back in the spring quarter, towards the end of the spring quarter, for an interview which she has kindly uh, agreed to let me uh, air right here on the Arabology show. And uh, part of the reason that I conducted the interview was that it followed uh, the uh, uh, screening at Stanford of one of uh, Dr. Miriam Abu Sharikh's movies. And in fact, this was a documentary called Gaza Tunnels to Nowhere. This uh, movie screened right here at Stanford on Tuesday, May 29th, 2012, and was followed by a lively discussion with the filmmaker. I was uh, uh, honored to be in the audience and to listen to some of the uh, uh, steps that led uh, Dr. Abu Sharkh into uh, producing or directing this movie. And she's a, she's a great director as well as a professor, ladies and gentlemen. But I won't say too much more and I'll let her uh, talk a little bit about herself and about the film Gaza Tunnels to Nowhere, documentary that aired at Stanford back in the spring. Dr. Abu Sharikh will be at Stanford through the year 2014. So without any further ado, let's go to the first part of the interview with Dr. Maryam Abu Sharikh, conducted by yours truly back in the spring of 2012. Sitting here at Stanford University with Professor Miriam Abu Shark, who is uh, a fa- who, who is or remains uh, on the faculty of the London School of Economics, the LSE, as well as being a visiting associate professor right here at the Stanford Center for International Development. Miriam, welcome. As we say in Arabic, ahlan wa sahlan. Welcome to Arabology. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So, uh, Miriam, I'm going to say right away that I was able to see the movie 
a few days ago that we, we screened here at Stanford. We're currently, you know, in the spring quarter. The movie is called Tunnels to Gaza. Is that, is that the official title now? Um, the movie is called Gaza Tunnels to Nowhere. Tunnels to Nowhere. And it, this is a short documentary that you directed yourself and that you screened right here at Stanford this spring. Yes, exactly. And and um, th this documentary to you, um, Miriam, is the result of probably a lot of uh, work and research and travel to put together this uh, film into an amazingly short 22, 23 minutes, wasn't it? How, how long did the movie end up being? Yes, exactly. So it's it's 22 minutes um, at the moment. I hope to be able to make a full feature length on the topic one day because it has garnered so much interest. But at the moment, it's a short documentary that's now being submitted to the various film festivals all over the world. So Gaza, Tunnels to Nowhere. I heard about it and I you know, decided, of course, I want to come because I'm interested in issues relating you know, to the Palestinian uh, dilemma, the Palestinian-Israeli uh, conflict and also issues relating to, you know, child labor. And you are interested in all three as well. What I didn't expect was the emotional impact that these 23 minutes had upon my life. And from what I witnessed on the, on the experience of the other viewers, um, how emotional was it for you to make a film that deals with these very, very, you know, difficult issues and to actually reduce it to 23 minutes. Yeah. No, it was it was quite challenging, I think, um, but at the same time it also kept me going because as you as you said I'm originally an academic, so um, I worked in in show business many years ago, but I wasn't um, fully trained as a as a film director from the cradle onwards. So um, there were quite a lot of challenges to overcome. But I thought that the stories that I had witnessed in Gaza that they were so powerful and important to tell, and it was important to give the people. Um, who generally get a lot of bad press a chance to tell their own stories in their own words. So it really kept me going. And you remember that one of the main characters, um, the disabled child Hassan, who's worked yes, in the tunnels. Yes, I do. I, has, I remember very well that image of him speaking on camera. Yeah, and um, he started when he was when he was very young, when he was um, fourteen. And then he got uh, disabled through an airstrike while while he was sitting in the tunnels. And he said, well, his biggest fear is that he'll die and nobody will know of it. And um, to... There's not, it's, uh, as as you know, it's one of the epicenters of the Middle East conflict, and there's not that much an individual academic can do, but at least I um, could give them the honor to um, be able to, to tell their own stories and become people in their own right and to start shaping the discourse them, themselves. 
So did you envision it to be sort of a short documentary at this point? Did you have to sacrifice a lot of footage and think, you know, to, uh, twice and three and four times about every shot in order to make it a short film? Or was it in the, in the works for you to make this into a longer film eventually? Yeah, the original vision was that it would be a feature-length film. Uh, but um, anything in the movie industry is just prohibitively expensive. So even the sound mixing and color correction and what have you for that short piece is, um, you know, financed by an academic quite quite the burden. So, and it was important to me that this gets out in a timely manner. So rather than going around and... Um, getting a bunch of funders on board or getting funders that I think somehow would dilute the message or delay the process, I thought, well, I'll make a short documentary. If I have the feeling that there is a lot of audience interest, I can still make this into a longer feature film later on which is still the plan. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I don't know if you're um, uh, able to, to discuss this, but in terms of the financing, was this primarily self-financed or was it uh, financed by Stanford? Or how did you go about obtaining the funds to direct and edit and do this uh, great movie? Yeah, so it was um, financed through a foundation, so um, the, the World Society Foundation. And um, there it remains more to be said said about that, but it was um, I wanted to have it through a foundation, so um, if uh, the movie should actually ever make any money, which is uh, you know very um, which is not likely with documentaries, <laughs> but nonetheless possible, uh, if the movie should actually ever make any money, then the money goes back to the foundation, so it doesn't go to profits to me or so, and we can use it. Um, to help the people in Gaza. So my, my vision is really to create um, the fund for, for disabled children in Gaza. And so uh, for those uh, listeners out there, Miriam, who have not seen the movie and uh, maybe have heard about it, or even those who don't even understand what these tunnels are, how they came to be, and how they're functioning in Gaza today. Can you just sum up a little bit? I know it's a difficult question, but to yeah. kind of give us an idea what the documentary is about. Yeah. <clears throat> So the documentary is about um, the secret smuggling tunnels that connect e uh, Egypt and Gaza and that have been used by Palestinians to really smuggle everything uh, in, into Gaza that they need. So um, starting in 2006 and in 2007 in earnest, a very, very harsh siege on Gaza was um, uh, imposed because... Um, um, Hamas, who's on the United States terror li terrorist list, took over, and um, the, the result was that Israel and Egypt imposed the siege, and at the time, only 30 items were actually allowed into Gaza, so almost nothing. So everything has come through the tunnels, from diapers to bridal dresses to garbanzo beans, and um, since the 2009 and 2010 war um, to a large extent building materials because uh, 50,000 people were made homeless in the Gaza war and there was an immense need to reconstruct but at the same time importing cement to Gaza which has a population of over one and a half million was completely prohibited. Wow. So 
I when I was at the tunnels, what I just saw were stacks and stacks and stacks of cement coming in through the tunnels. a group named uh, Dam D-A-M and uh, a song called Mali Hurriye that song uh, was uh, or that track was taken from a compilation album from the Paleo Festival Nyon Village du Monde 
2012. And that, of course, is a festival that takes place in Switzerland every year and uh, includes uh, an, an amazing uh, variety of artists, including many world artists, such as the group Dam, and, uh, and uh, a nice melange of songs that uh, eventually get uh, released uh, commercially. So uh, I hope you enjoyed that song. Before that, of course, we were listening to uh, part one of my interview with uh, Professor Miriam Abu Sharh, who uh, is uh, a visiting associate professor here at Stanford at the Stanford Center for International Development, and uh, as well as a visiting scholar at the Center for Democracy Development and the Rule of Law. We will be listening to uh, the second and third part, hopefully, of my uh, interview with Professor Abu Sharh during uh, today's episode of Arabology, and uh, we'll uh, we'll give you some music in between to uh, get you uh, in a good mood as well. So hopefully you'll stay with me until 5 p.m. right here on KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. My name is DJ Ramsey, and the show's name, of course, is Arabology. The AIDS Memorial Quilt was begun in 1987 to commemorate loved ones who had died of AIDS. Since its storefront beginnings in San Francisco, the quilt has grown over 44,000 panels in memory of nearly 88,000 individuals whose lives were cut short by AIDS. The quilt remains a powerful symbol of both grief and hope, and displays of the quilt around the world serve to inform and educate the public about AIDS prevention and awareness. If you would like to host a display of the quilt in your community, to volunteer at a local display, or to contribute to the name's project, please visit www.aidsquilt.org. That's www.aidsquilt.org. Three thirty eight PM right here on uh, KZSU Stanford ninety four one FM. This is uh, DJ Ramsey, and the show's name is Arabology. Thank you for joining me on this. Uh, uh, well, I don't want to say chilly, but sort of cloudy Thursday afternoon right here at Stanford. Hope you're enjoying the uh, songs as well as the uh, interview that I'm bringing you today on the Arabology show. If you're interested in uh, seeing how any of these names are spelled, especially the artists that I've been playing. Uh, then uh, feel free to check uh, zookeeper.stanford.edu and there you can find playlists by date and uh, those are not just playlists for my show but for every other show we have here so feel free to check out the uh, the site and uh, navigate your way through uh, different artists uh, that we have on different shows right here on KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM and uh, I also wanted to uh, let everybody know that uh, the uh, interview that I conducted with Dr. or Professor Miriam Abu Sharh was actually taped back in the spring. So if there were some references in there uh, about spring, well, that's the the, the reason. And uh, I was uh, away for the summer. And so uh, this is the uh, first time I'm able to actually air the interview with Professor Abu Sharh, Professor Miriam Abu Sharh, which she kindly agreed to uh, back in the spring. It is uh, coming up to 3.40 p.m. And I think maybe it's time to listen to a bit of instrumental music coming in from the Arabic-speaking world. What do you think of that? Shall we kick back and listen to some Pangia and see where that takes us? Thank you for joining me this afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is always a pleasure to be with you.
That was uh, Lebanon's uh, Nancy Ajram and a song uh, called Hikayat al-Dini. Hikayat al-Dini means uh, stories of this life. And uh, that uh, song was taken from uh, one of Nancy Ajram's uh, new albums, not the latest one. And that album is titled N7, I guess because it was her seventh officially released album. Before that, we heard uh, Tanya Saleh and the song Wihde. Wihde means unity, but it also means other things like a girl or loneliness. So the, Tanya uh, Saleh was playing on that word in Arabic and uh, kind of was uh, talking about uh, national unity in Lebanon, something that she finds uh, sorely lacking, as well as uh, concepts of loneliness and gender. So there you go, Tanya Saleh and the uh, song Wahde was taken from her album Wahde. And uh, before that, well, you kind of heard the song that seemed uh, very classical and uh, kind of at first did not seem to go within a show called Arabology, but certainly that instrumental tune you heard with the cello sound and the classical music was by an Arab artist. His name is uh, Marcel Khalife, and it was taken from an album uh, called uh, Fall of the Moon in uh, Arabic, Sukut al-Qamar, and the track was called... Uh, simply um, The Stranger's Bed, which in Arabic is Sarir Al-Gariba. And uh, I hope you enjoyed that track, ladies and gentlemen. Not sure if you guys are uh, familiar with uh, with uh, um, uh, Marcel Khalife, but he was uh, 
uh, in California recently, and uh, he uh, did a series of concerts where uh, you know people were able to go and enjoy his uh, music and uh, uh, under the moonlight, which uh, makes it actually a very uh, apropos name to call his album uh, "Fall of the Moon." Uh, we began the set with a beautiful instrumental tune by a group called Pangia. P-A-N-G-I-A. So uh, I'm not sure that that would be Pangea, right? Uh, that the spelling would be different. But uh, either way, the song is beautiful. And it was called The Night is Beautiful. That uh, track by Pangea was taken from their album West of East, Volume 5. So hopefully you enjoyed uh, this uh, kind of selection, ladies and gentlemen, right here on the Arabology Show with yours truly, DJ Ramsey, coming to you every Thursday from 3 to 5. 5 p.m. It is coming up to 4 p.m. here on KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM, which means that I'm almost halfway through my show. I wanted to take this uh, point, ladies and gentlemen, I'll take this opportunity to remind everybody to always stay tuned to KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. We have an amazing, amazing uh, uh, amount of uh, programming and shows, diverse and uh, experience or uh, expressing, uh, there we go, expressing different points of view. And uh, certainly uh, we encourage you to look at kzsu.stanford.edu and take a look at our schedule, which includes uh, many, many amazing programs and very diverse programs, programs and songs and music and interviews that you can only get at KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. Perpetual state of lush, velvety, indie, undie, punky, and whatever music Mr. Esquire deems necessary for discipline. He's moody, like a cat. Meow, meow. Mr. Esquire will put you over his knee and spank you because you've been bad. Every Tuesday from 10 to 2 a.m. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it is uh, 4 p.m. right here on KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM, which means I'm halfway through my show, Arabology, on this uh, Thursday afternoon. We are streaming live at kzsulive.stanford.edu. And as promised, uh, my the second part of my interview with Professor Miriam Abu Sharh uh, is about to, to, uh, to uh, come through. Uh, I wanted to say uh, that uh, Professor Abu Sharh was kind enough to sit with me in the spring and to talk to me about her research, her work uh, here at Stanford and elsewhere, as well as about a documentary she directed called Gaza Tunnels to Nowhere. Uh, professor Miriam Abu Sharh is a visiting associate professor at the Stanford Center for International Development and a visiting scholar at the Center for Democracy, Development and the Rule of Law right here at Stanford. She sat with me back in, uh, well, towards the end of the spring quarter of 2012 to talk about her film, Gaza Tunnels to Nowhere. We listened to part one of the interview earlier in the show, and we're about to listen to part two of that interview, that pre-recorded interview. Uh, thank you for tuning in.
What what attracted me to do this story were a couple of things. So so first of all, I really wanted to do an expose of who actually pays the price for the siege and also who profits. Mm. And what I found out is that the official reason for the siege on Gaza was to weaken Hamas because they were they. Um, the international community did not condone that Hamas was elected, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you can ask yourself why they let them be on the ballot in the first place. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the the yeah, Palestinians right. only really had two choices, right? Yeah. <laughs> so they were very dissatisfied with their current government, which was unbelievably corrupt. Mm -hmm. So um, my father um, also worked uh, for the Palestinian Authority, which is a secular government, and I remember he was really shocked by what, what he saw. So... They voted against corruption. They only had one other option, right? When they chose that option, um, basically the start of the siege was imposed to say to weaken that government. So as a, as a social scientist, I also wanted to see, well, you know, we've had the siege now for many years. Has it actually accomplished the alleged goal, right? Mm -hmm. And what I found out is that it really hasn't and that... Um, what the siege has done is destroy the Palestinian middle class, which, as all political scientists know, is really the backbone for democracy. And it's really empowered Hamas and, uh, you know, um, thugs in, in many a way who um, deal in this black market economy and who have a complete monopoly through the siege and through the tunnels over all imports and exports. So um, you can ask yourself, has it um, really accomplished the stated goal of weakening Hamas? And the answer is fairly clearly no. So um, then, of course, more skeptical people ask, well, is the stated goal really the real goal? Mm -hmm. But I think that would be another movie right. to explore this. Uh, right. And so you were you filmed this uh, somewhere between 2007 and uh, 2010? Uh, I filmed this between so mainly 2010 and 2011. Okay, so it's yeah. very recent. Yes, it's very recent and it was really um it was really motivated after after the the war on on Gaza mm -hmm. because I th I think that's that's true for a lot of people that I know in the in the Bay Area whether Jewish or Muslim or so that 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 was seen as I mean Gaza had been under a very harsh siege for three years and the population was just locked into Gaza and then there was no escaping right from from right. the war bombs so I think a lot of people turned their attention to Gaza so. yeah and so how uh, how did your interest uh, begin I mean how did you first learn of these tunnels and uh, what made you want to go out there and make a movie about them yeah so uh, I'm half Palestinian. I, uh, my um, my mom's American, and um, my dad is Palestinian. He actually grew up in Gaza in a in a refugee camp there. Wow! And then later got a Swedish scholarship. Uh, did his PhD at um, at the at the time probably the most prestigious. Um, 
um, economics university, the University of Vienna, and then was also a professor. So, <laughs> so, so where is that university? Sorry, it's uh, the University of uh, Vienna in in, in Austria. In Austria. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I, I so, thought we were talking about you know somewhere near Gaza, but no, he no. actually went to Europe and got his. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. And uh, yes, please go on. So. Um, And um, and you know he's he's uh, like myself quite um, qu quite a secular person at the, at, at the end of uh, the day, and he wanted to go back after the Oslo Peace Accords to Gaza to help reconstruct the country, and then what happened is that he got trapped in Gaza. Hmm during the siege on Gaza, because n nobody could get out of, of Gaza anymore in 2007. I had talked to the head of the German embassy in Cairo, and he said that even people who had worked for the German embassy couldn't get out and had to pay amounts as high as 5,000 euro to go out through, through the tunnels back in 2007. So it was a very, very serious siege. I mean, that border was come in complete lockdown. So that's really where where it began. I had seen him in 2006 in, in Egypt, and um, he has a, a farm there. And and then I wasn't able to see him anymore for years. So, and then in 2010, because of the international um, aid flotilla mm -hmm. that tried to, yeah to break the siege on Gaza, the you know, maritime yes. Siege, There was, uh, and they never actually reached Gaza, but in a way they reached their goal because due to the international outcry of nine people dying, Egypt announced that it would open its border to Gaza. So they really just opened them long enough for uh, to give me the hope to see, you know, if I could get into Gaza and, and visit them and try to get them out. Mm -hmm. So... So this was the time where you, you, you went to Gaza yourself, was in, in that year, in exactly. 2010, yes, yes, in that yeah. window period. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, and, and went in there and started filming, um, and then finished filming by earlier this year. And, and, and this is really what the movie is, is talking about. It's something as recent as the last year, mm -hmm. and the, um, well, the... the the surgeons of these t tunnels that uh, I don't think too many people know about. Uh, so was there a relation between your dad living there and you finding out about the tunnels or was there was this something that came about in a different way? Yeah, if you're in Gaza, it's you can't really not know about the tunnels because uh, literally everything comes through them, right? So yeah. you go and buy a doll, and the doll came through the tunnels. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. um, so it's it's really everything. But the people, <laughs> what's funny is that um, the people of Gaza themselves are just terrified of those tunnels. So trying to um, to get my dad to actually go to the tunnels with me was such a chore and we had in the, in the original cut we had um, a lot of that uh, in there we decided to, to take it out but it's um, but people are very very scared of the tunnel so right. because they uh, get bombed by Israel they get gassed by the Egyptians which mm. is something I think very few people know right. um, they're not 
uh, they're not German engineering necessarily, so they're not you know very well fortified. They're not well constructed. I remember um, walking through one through Egypt, and you could hear just the sand drizzle from the sea like all the time. Wow. And I really, you really have a feeling this can yeah. collapse on you at any time, which it does, right? right? Yeah. The UN actually um, keeps st- statistics, and I I was on their statistical up- update about the tunnels, and I would get. Um, news every couple of days that tunnel workers died, that kind of always got trapped, that wow. tunnel workers, yeah. So they're, they're just very, very uh, dangerous places. And I think really from all, you know, from from all places in the world, Gaza is, is quite an anomaly, right? Because it's not... Uh, it's not part of any nation state. Um, it's not formally occupied, which means that there's no occupying power that at least has humanitarian responsibility under international law. It's not free, though, because it's cut off. And um, and I think there, the access to journalists is very, very restricted, right? Yeah. So if you're an Israeli journalist, for example, you can't get in. Like if you're a typical Egyptian journalist, you can't get in. So there's very little genuine um, information coming out of out of Gaza, and and Gaza is such an international anomaly. But I think of all things in Gaza, the tunnels are a further anomaly, mm, right? right? And I think of all the one and a half million people who are trapped in Gaza and who have a difficult lot, probably the people who work in the tunnels under really daily um, psychological terror that they'll never come out of there are probably the worst off. So I really wanted to um, wanted to do a movie about them because I've done a lot on theory of justice and you know not um, to bore the viewers too much with that but because I'm a social scientist there's a lot of discussion about you know who are the people you should most help and it's really me and always the most vulnerable and I really thought these tunnel workers especially young kids right who are already yeah. disabled I mean they're right. just the right. worst off of, yeah. of any group. which ties in with your interest in child labor and you know non-discrimination let's say discrimination or non-discrimination um, uh, was that actually something you saw minors you know and under international law be, uh, you know working in the tunnels yeah or, under these difficult circumstances, yeah. or was it an ex- more of an exceptional thing? I, I saw a lot of um, of of workers under eighteen. So, according to um, the UN definition, according to the International Labor Organization, which is the um, United Nations agency specialized on work, if you're um, younger than 18 and if you uh, perform um, hazardous labor so mm-hmm. that includes tunneling or you know in normal places yeah. it would be called mining <laughs> <Yeah. you know? laughs> one would think then, that's, that's child labor I mean right yeah. that's, that would fall yeah. under that category yeah yeah exactly that that is actually out outlawed mm-hmm. internationally so yeah and yet it is happening I mean you saw yeah. this happening uh, tragically uh, on a daily basis yeah
سكروها بوجه الناس ما عاد حدا يقدر يشوفها بعيون الناس حرقوها هدموها واحتلوا البيوت بعز النهار والناس شردوها ياسمين تعربش على الحيطان القدس بيوت وشوارع حارات تشهد علي صار حوطوها بجيش وحواجز
Mawal by uh, Brukar, and uh, the title, I guess, was just Mawal. Mawal, if you know uh, the word, means lamentation, and uh, that was taken uh, from the Paleo Festival du Monde, Moyen-Orient 2012. Before that, it was Rim Banna, a song called uh, A Time to Cry, and that followed the second part of my interview that I've been airing here on today's episode of Arabology with the Professor Miriam Abu Sharh. We'll be listening to the uh, third and final part of that interview later on in the show today. In the meantime, I'm so happy that you were able to join me on this Thursday afternoon right here on the Arabology show with yours truly, DJ Ramsey, and uh, hope to that you are enjoying the kind of uh, mixed uh, songs that I've been playing. Some uh, slow, some uh, fast, and uh, and some somewhere in between. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's always a delight to be here on Thursday afternoons from 3 p.m. until 5 p.m. to bring you a little bit of taste from the Arabic-speaking world. And uh, today was no exception. Like what you are hearing. Help make sure KZSU can continue providing great programs without commercials to listeners all over the Bay Area. Donate to KZSU. For more information, email our underwriting department at underwriting at kzsu.stanford.edu or call us at 650-723-9010. And don't forget to keep on listening. The Cheetah Conservation Fund is a non-profit, non-governmental organization established in Namibia in 1990 to support cheetah conservation research and education and to help protect natural cheetah habitats throughout Africa. Their goal is to find practical solutions enabling cheetahs to live in harmony with people and the environment. For more information on how you can become involved in their efforts, please visit www.cheetah.org. That's www.cheetah.org.
4.35 p.m., ladies and gentlemen, right here on KZSU Stanford, 94.1 FM. This is the second episode of the third season of my show, Arabology. Glad you were able to join me. And uh, although the show kind of, uh, you know, concentrates or emphasizes music coming from the Arabic-speaking world that is not mainstream, meaning alternative music coming from the region, one cannot uh, escape the fact that uh, once in a while, one must go to the traditional as well. And uh, what better way to do that than to say a name that I'm sure will create a lot of love and a lot of memories in the minds of so many. It's a one name. The name is Feirouz, and she is the, the ultimate diva who comes from Lebanon and uh, who is known all over the Arabic-speaking world. And I dare say beyond, she is in her late 70s, continues to record, and uh, I think uh, has uh, uh, such an amazing amount of fans that whenever she does perform in concert, whether it be in the East or in the West, the uh, concert hall becomes uh, sort of uh, emblematic of uh, a, a little mini Arab world where people of uh, different uh, uh, Arabic nationalities come together and sing in perfect harmony. So uh, thank you to Fayrouz. Her, ne- her real name is uh, Nuhat Haddad. But uh, here she is uh, singing one of her classics. And uh, that will take us into the uh, last half hour of my show, Arabology, right here on KZSU Stanford, 94.1 FM. Yes, 
The uh, amazing uh, Ibrahim Malouf and an instrumental called Will Soon Be a Woman. Before that, we heard uh, those uh, jamming African beats and tunes on an album called African Blues. The uh, ti- the song was, uh, or title was Camel Shuffle, and it was by Amar Sundi. Uh, before that, the instrumental was actually by uh, not one, not two but a trio the trio Zubran and uh, the the uh, track Nawar and we began the set today on the Arabology show with uh, the one and only Feirouz a song that took us back uh, many decades and uh, probably aged some of us it was called uh, a song that kind of talks about the years that have gone by so pretty apropos to play that on a nostalgic afternoon uh, Ladies and gentlemen, my name is DJ Ramsey, and I come to you every Thursday from 3 p.m. till 5 p.m. to play you some songs from the uh, Arabic-speaking world, songs that you may not be familiar with, and songs that will uh, hopefully uh, surprise you in the uh, um, uh, well extent to which they experiment between Eastern and Western genres and bring them together with Arabic lyrics often, or just music, and, uh, and sort of manage to capture the heart even if you don't speak the Arabic language. Hopefully you've enjoyed the selection of songs, melodies, and music that I've brought to you today. I want to urge everybody uh, to stay tuned after my show, of course, to the show New Noise with who else but your amazing DJ, Mary Cat McGee, and uh, New Noise, which comes to you every Thursday from 5 p.m. until 6 p.m., is uh, putting the post in post-hardcore one nail 
at a time. New noise with your DJ Mary Cat McGee comes to you following my show from 5 p.m. till 6 p.m. So please stay tuned for that, ladies and gentlemen, right here uh, on KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. During this show, I was uh, I played um, segments of my interview with Professor Miriam Abusharh, who is uh, uh, who is actually uh, a professor right here at Stanford and uh, she's uh, a visiting associate professor at the Stanford Center for International Development and she is a visiting scholar at the Center for Democracy Development and the Rule of Law. Uh, She is also on faculty at the Development Studies Institute at the London School of Economics and Political Science where she is the principal research fellow on a large grant by the European Research Council on Global governance and human rights and in addition to all that ladies and gentlemen she is also a director and she directed a a short documentary called Gaza Tunnels to Nowhere and uh, that short documentary has been receiving a lot of critical praise it is not commercially released but it has been uh, playing at uh, certain festivals and has been receiving quite a bit of recognition and awards so uh, we'll listen to the third part of my interview with Professor Miriam Abouchard right now. And that will take us towards the end of my show, Arabology, that comes to you every Thursday from 3 p.m. until 5 p.m. right here on KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM. Here is the third part of my interview with Dr. Abouchard, Miriam Abouchard, which was pre-recorded back at the end of spring quarter 2012. So, Miriam, I know I know that uh, I promised you not to keep you too long, but you, I did want to ask you a little bit about your dad. You made a reference to him, your father, who isn't in this film. He wasn't really in um, uh, filmed in the uh, Gaza Tunnels to Nowhere film, but we did manage to see him. I think in the in another film that you have worked on. It was called Arab Spring Wedding, mm-hmm. and that um, is I don't think that's commercially available uh, to to view, but the trailer is on the internet uh-huh. and for those of us who watch the trailer it seemed to be a very very interesting film because it's a highly seemed much more personal uh, in terms of the of the topic that it's discussing but also shows your dad uh, and uh, your relationship with your father so um, can you tell us a little bit about Arab Spring Wedding uh, and what that means yeah. To you? Yeah. <laughs> so, Arab Spring Wedding was really uh, uh, just a crazy coincidence that I was able to film that because I was um, in full production on the Gaza Tunnels movie, and then the Arab Spring happened mm. out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. So, and we thought, well, we have film crews on the ground on you know both sides of the Gazan border and in Egypt and so on. Why don't we actually? Um, film the events as they're going on wow. and uh, and then the Arab Spring as you, as you know led to uh, at least a partial opening of the Gazan border for the first time in, in half a decade so my mm. father was able to leave Gaza mm. right? because um, old old men <laughs> and uh, women and children were able to, to leave Gaza after the um, after Mubarak fell. Okay. So, and but my dad had never actually met 
my husband and um, you know he hadn't seen his grandchild and and you know of course that in in Arab uh, tradition you know typically it's the dad who makes who actually chooses the husband yeah. right? I should say here that your husband <laughs> who's uh, um, uh, I guess your number one fan as well is not uh, Palestinian himself yeah. you're you actually are married to a uh, he's German uh, yes. and yeah. and you have a, a baby yeah um, and so the, so the in this film, you actually address that, the, the whole idea of the wedding, the participation of the Palestinian father in his daughter's wedding. Exactly. And, uh, and so uh, you, this was being filmed simultaneously at the same time as you were filming the, the Gaza tunnels, but ended up being sort of a, a separate project for you. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very, the, the tone uh, and the setting is, is very different than Gaza tunnels. I mean, Gaza tunnels really is is a tragedy you can't you know say it any other way and um and it's and it's very much focused on on the children in in the tunnels and it's very much focused on the political economy of gaza arab spring wedding is actually a comedy again this wasn't envisioned uh, you know much in advance it was because when we flew to Cairo to meet uh, my dad and have um, a second ceremony, because as I had told my father, you know, a daughter is not really married until the father gives her away. <laughs> so you, have, they you, were, you were already married uh, yeah, um, so, in, in Europe somewhere? Or, yeah, legally yeah. we were already married in the U.S. But but because of the situation, I actually, I, I never had a real wedding, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. We were just, we did the paperwork, yeah. but there was no real wedding celebration because, you know, I mean, you can't really celebrate a wedding on your own, right? right? And, so, and, and your father wasn't allowed to leave. Exactly. So he couldn't attend any wedding anyway. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, so so how did that happen? You said you ended up going from Gaza to Cairo, was it? Or? Yeah, he yeah. came. Uh, we we flew from um, from the U.S. Over, over Germany, and my father was able to leave Gaza due to the Arab Spring, so we met in Cairo. Oh, wow. And... and um, I thought to myself, well, so originally I had wanted to do um, interviews in Cairo with, um, you know, politicians and dignitaries about the Arab Spring. So we had a whole film crew there. Yeah. And I did do that. But then they also ended up filming us. And it turned out that it was so funny to see my dad and my husband interact because <laughs> the cultures were so different, and yeah. uh, the and I had no idea that my husband was actually so funny on screen. I mean, the audience, I mean, it just cracks up every time <laughs> because such things as you know Arab bride price or like you know or such sayings as giving away or like that was so alien to to them. So. And actually, there there are a lot of very very um, humorous uh, moments yeah. where you see both of them kind of struggling, you know, with their own preconceptions, <laughs> and you learn a lot about um, Arab wedding traditions versus Western wedding traditions yeah. because you see a lot of the misunderstandings. <laughs> so it just ended up being so funny that we yeah. cut a completely separate piece well, from it. Yeah, because that was going to be my next question: was was it a, a, you know a Palestinian wedding or a kind of Arabic wedding, or was it a Western wedding that you? You had in Cairo. Yeah. It was a little bit of both. Yeah, it was a bit of both. So in in the end, we we got um, married in front of the pyramids, and my my dad said uh, to my husband. 
look, you know, I give you 6,000 years of culture or something uh, like that. <laughs> and and my, my dad, my husband just looked at it like, well, and, uh, and then... Uh, and then, but but right until the very last moment, the, you know the the proper protocol wasn't clear because in Arab uh, wedding ceremonies, you don't kiss the bride on the mouth, right? But of course, in American and German wedding ceremonies, it's a staple, right? right? So my husband somehow wanted to kiss me on the mouth, and my father had instructed him to just kiss me on the forehead, and, you know. And then he was looking at my dad and like, furtively, what should I do now? So, so until the very end, there were you know all these little conflicts, but right. it also you know I think it also shows you that with a bit of goodwill, you can actually overcome these right. cultural differences. Right. So right. you know, and uh, so, um, uh, so so this uh, how how long did it turn out to be? Is the film finished? Uh, Arab Spring Wedding? How how long did it turn out to be? How in terms of minutes? Yeah. So uh, again, it's it's not um, so the production is done. It's a it's in post production. It'll probably be a feature length film. I got uh, you know in a way, uh, sadly, I got a lot more interest for that film because it's lighthearted and comical and you know speaks about cultural issues. And uh, I got I've gotten a lot of interest for that film and offers to finance uh, post production and and so on. So it's um, I think I'll have enough. Funds to to do a proper feature length film. Okay, so so but at this point, uh, Arab Spring Wedding is not available. Like it's you're not screening that movie yet. It's still in post production. Exactly, it hasn't been. Whereas the the Gaza Tunnels to Nowhere uh-huh. documentary yes. is being screened at various festivals with the hope of it being released uh, officially uh, exactly. in, in the near exactly. future. Yeah, good. So we're conducting this interview in the spring, uh, in June of 2012, and by the time this interview airs will be in September 2012. Do you think by then Arab Spring Wedding might be uh, you know, available for people to view and screen or you don't want to uh, anticipate anything <laughs> <Yeah>. to <laughs> That's you the hope. predict? That's the That's hope. The hope. Yeah. Could, be, could be. But either way, um, Gaza Tunnels to Nowhere continues oh. to be out there. It is a film that um, 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 you know means a lot to you, obviously, from the way you've uh, invested not only only, you know, resources, but your actual, I would say, emotional and physical health in, in filming a very difficult movie. It's out there now, and it's uh, it's done, in a sense. Um, how do you feel looking back at, uh, you know, the fact that it is done, despite many obstacles? And uh, and how, what do you think is the next step for Miriam Abushar? <laughs> so... Uh... Well, I uh, I hope that it's it's going to be f- screened at many festivals and that many people will have uh, the chance to to see the the film Gaza Tunnels to Nowhere and and um, maybe rethink some of the things that they've previously thought about that part of the world. Yeah, uh, so, so that you're you're kind of counteracting some of the um, images and stereotypes that we get about that part of the yeah, world. Yeah. Good. And so, uh, and is it too early to ask you about what your next project is going to be, or are you uh, right now still uh, uh, in post production with the Arab Spring wedding film? <laughs> well, uh, based on what I've done um, so far, I've had some interest from Hollywood to make these films into more of a docudrama. Mm-hmm. I'm. Um, 
um, you know, being an academic, I'm, I'm more interested in actual documentaries because for me, academia has always been about discovering the truth. And that's what the films are about, too. Just that I'm using a different medium. This time I'm using film as a medium, whereas normally as an academic, I use, you know, more of a written yeah. medium. Uh, so. Traditional. Yeah. Well, Maria Abushar, thank you so much for sitting with me, for speaking with me so candidly about uh, uh, very uh, sensitive issues. I congratulate you on a powerful movie, a courageous movie that you filmed, and I wish you uh, continuous success. And uh, I hope that uh, your dad is uh, going to be listening to this at some point. <laughs> is he back in, in Gaza at this Yeah, point? he's back in Gaza. He's, he's back, back in, in Gaza. Gaza. Yeah, I just so talked to him. I know that your um, Arabic is rustic sometimes, but how would you want to say a quick salam to your dad out here, right here on the <laughs> Arabology show? <laughs> Salam. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, Mr. <laughs> we call him Hajjo. Dr. Hasneen. So, Dr. Shukran, and thank you, Miriam, for uh, for being such a good sport and for uh, being uh, an amazing guest here on the Arabology Show. I wish you continuous success. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was an honor. Salam. Ladies and gentlemen, that was the last part of my interview with Professor Miriam Abushar, conducted back in the spring of 2012. Hope you enjoyed it. Please stay tuned after this show to New Noise with Mary Cat McGee. New Noise, putting the post in post-hardcore, one nail at a time. That show comes to you from 5 to 6 p.m. this Thursday and every Thursday following my show, so please stay tuned for that. Thank you for joining me on the second episode of the third season of Arabology today. I am so happy to have been with you since 3 p.m. Join me again next week if you can. 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. right here on KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. I'm going to leave you with a track by Al Husseini Anivola. It is called Talawit and what a way to uh, say salam to everybody out there. Goodbye. Shalom. Merci. Au revoir. Arrivederci. And of course, Ma Salam.